rainbow. Exorcism, a sacrifice. Blessing or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find it. Hello and welcome to the Nashi Cast. Tonight we're doing another Beyond Nashi episode. This is Beyond Nashi number 21. Tonight we are covering another Jess Franco movie. I wouldn't say it's outside of our wheelhouse. As a matter of fact, it's right in our wheelhouse, but it's still damned weird. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And after that long prelude, we're we're changing things up, folks. We're changing things around. We're doing something different. It's going to be kind of... Okay, it's not going to be that different. It's going to be a little <laughs> odd. We've got some emails we need to get to that we've kind of been slacking off on in recent months. So this month, you're getting a new Beyond Nashy. And if we're really lucky and if we're really on the ball, you'll get a new regular style Nashy cast next month. But I ain't making no promises. That's right. Because we, we Nashy cast boys have been freaking busy. Ain't we, Troy? <laughs> um, what are you talking about, man? It's like we've we've had nothing on our plates here. We've had nothing of nothing, interest, nothing, nothing exciting going on our on. plate. No, <laughs> folks. Of course, we've been allowed to uh, talk about publicly the fact that yes, everyone is now aware that uh, Scream Factory is going to be putting out a Nashy set of films, a set of five Paul Nashy films, which comes out at the end of June. Mm-hmm. Order them now directly from Scream Factory, and you get them two weeks early. Yeah. That's right, folks. The, the era of the Paul Nashy mm-hmm. Blu-ray is in full swing and is coming right at your head. <laughs> you got it. You got get, it. Get your glove up. You don't want to duck because mm-hmm. then you miss it. You want to get the glove up and catch that bitch. It is the year of the werewolf, that's for sure. Oh, man. It's definitely the year of Paul Nashy because I'm telling you, that set of five films includes Horror Rises from the Tomb, Blue mm-hmm. Eyes of the Broken Doll, Night of the Werewolf, Exorcism. Vengeance of the Zombies. Yes, yes, and Vengeance yeah. of the Zombies. I can't believe I almost forgot. Mm-hmm. Anyway, those are the five films in this Paul Nashy Blu-ray set. And uh, yes, the news has broken. We were allowed to talk about it publicly now because, of course, Scream Factory published the information mm-hmm. on their own website. Yeah. Troy and I have recorded three new commentary tracks for this forthcoming Paul <laughs> Blu-ray set. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. We're uh we uh we got this opportunity because uh we uh were able to lie our way into it. No, we didn't lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we told them hey, we've done the the Inquisition one for uh Mondo Macabro. Why don't you let us do one for you? Mm-hmm. As a matter of fact, why don't you let us do three? Yes, we talked our, ourselves into a heap load of work. We had an incredibly yeah. tight deadline. Uh, we had about a month to craft three different commentary tracks, uh, and let's just say that that was uh, we 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 bit off more than we can chew, and then chewed like a some bitch. Yeah, uh, we we got our way through it, and you, we managed. We it. leave it to you, of course, to judge the results. But it was definitely a a learning experience, to say the least. Uh, uh, these yes. things, uh, it feels good to actually just sit here and bullshit, doesn't it? Because uh, yeah. you don't get to bullshit on those audio commentaries. <laughs> no, no, there's a there's a little there's a little. It, it, we, we we played it a little loose at times on the mm. on, on those commentary tracks to kind of to kind of we, we created a little space there mm. in the tracks to allow us to uh, 
to go back and forth just a little bit to see if uh, see if any uh, mm-hmm. odd connections got made, knowing that we could edit them out as if we if we yeah. felt that they didn't fit or that they weren't quite right. And mm-hmm. I'm pretty happy with them, but I'll be honest with you, I'll be much happier to know what other people think mm-hmm. because if they catch the same flaws that I know are there, <laughs> I'll know I suck. <laughs> So, Troy, Troy doesn't suck. Troy doesn't suck at all. Troy blows. Uh, yes, I suck, he right. blows. Yes, but together we're an incredible team. It makes us an incredible team, doesn't it? Do we create a vacuum? We do. Board? I think we actually, in nature, abhors us. So, yes. <laughs> well, nature does abhor us. This <laughs> is true. But uh, if you at all want to see Paul Nashie films, definitely Blu-ray is your option these days. And... If you are listening to our voices, you might even want to hear us talk about those three particular mm. films. Mm-hmm. Yes, indeed. And don't forget, the Mondo Macabro Inquisition Blu-ray is orderable directly from them or from mm-hmm. Amazon or other retailers. Go and get them. Mm-hmm. I feel like a whore mm-hmm. now. Well, you know, the, the those of you who did order that Inquisition uh, advanced copy, advanced edition. The limited, lucky, limited. limited edition. Limited edition. If you were lucky to order the limited edition of Inquisition. It's probably turning up on your doorstep this week. It turned up on ours today, and and, yes, and, and yes. Uh, that's why we had to wipe off the recorder there and all before we started recording because we're very very excited about uh, about uh, getting our mitts yeah, on that. What was it, saliva or sweat? <laughs> I think it was probably sweat and some tears mixed in, maybe too. So, oh, I think I think I shed all the tears yeah, I'm going to shed over those commentary tracks yeah. while I was editing them. So, <laughs> Woo, man. But so, it was fun, and we we uh, but we do we do let, let us know what you think, folks, when you get a chance to listen to them. You know, uh, yeah, please, uh, please do open open up with both barrels. We can take it. You know, yeah. Know. Always remember, you can write to us at mm. nashycast at gmail dot com. We'd be glad to hear what you think of them, uh, good or ill. Uh, if we ever get the chance to do this kind of thing again in the future. Uh, if you have some creative criticism, mm-hmm. not creative, oh Lord, no, constructive. constructive. <laughs> I don't need creative criticism. I have all the creative criticism I need. Creative criticism usually like consists of telling somebody what they can do with with it and, and, and how to insert it and, and uh, how to get you know, so, at, what, at what at what angle and <laughs> yeah. at what speed and yeah, 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 yeah constructive criticism will help us build better uh, podcasts. If indeed, I mean, our audio commentaries. If indeed, or both. if indeed, or both. If indeed, we ever get the chance to do uh, more. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so uh, you. Maybe the time to tell them what. Uh, now, again, you know, I know, uh, but on Nash, will go ahead and concede right here that yes, when we pick Franco films, it generally means we're picking people who did not work at all with Paul Nashie. But you know, we fudge a bit with Franco because we just yeah, yeah. where else are we going to find a chance to talk about Franco and, films? And so, and this is definitely a this is definitely a a Spanish production. This exactly. Is, this exactly. was uh, filmed on the uh, the in the in the uh, well along the Spanish coastline, mm-hmm. and uh, boy, does it show. Uh, oh man, it's, shows, it's off a, that, shows off that yeah. coastline. This is uh, the the film we're covering tonight. I guess we should. I guess we should yeah. actually expel the t- expel the, mm-hmm. the, the the title from our faces. So that <laughs> yeah, people, right. Uh, if you did not look at anything else, uh, the title of this film is "The Night Has a Thousand Desires" from 1984, and it is uh, a very interesting film. It's very much a Jess Franco film. We'll get into a, yeah. a discussion after a break, but. Um, this is this is one that has recently been released by by our good friends over at Mondo Macabro on Blu-ray. Yes, and neither is, neither of us had ever seen this one. Nope. And there's a reason. There's it's a very interesting reason why very few people have actually seen mm-hmm. this one. This is a, a rarer piece of mm-hmm. uh, of uh, Jess Franco's long list of credits, and so it, it's it's very cool to finally be able to dig into this area of his. Uh, 
of his career. And uh, this is a good jumping in point because it has a lot of similarities to some of his previous movies. And like I say, we'll discuss that a little later on. But right now, we want to uh, take a quick break. We'd like to thank you first up for uh, tuning in, listening to us, and being curious enough about what we're up to to pay attention to us. Mm -hmm. And uh, we will scoot some cats out of the way, and we'll be back in just a few minutes (laughs) to talk about this Jess Franco film. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen, and that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. The following is a message from the American Podcast Council. We need your help. Podcastophobia strikes four out of five Americans every day, and chances are that someone you love or could love given time is currently suffering from this devastating affliction. But it doesn't have to be that way. For zero dollars a day, you can help. Please, make some time today to let just one person know about a favorite podcast of yours. It can be this one, but it doesn't have to be. But it probably should be, but seriously, no pressure. And show them where to find it and how to download, play, and subscribe to it. And tell us what you recommended. Use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. Thank you for speaking out. And thank you for listening. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Hear your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Monster Kid Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the HP Lovecraft Film Festival. Classic Monsters. Modern Talk. And the head of Rondo Hatton. Only on Monster Monster Kid Radio.
Night. The Night Has a Thousand Desires from 1984, directed and written by Jess Franco. Um, this is an odd film, and, and the reason this is kind of one of the more difficult films in Franco's career to have seen is that it's one of roughly about 20 films that Franco made for a company called Golden Film in the early 1980s, mm-hmm. uh, all the way up through the mid-80s, apparently. <laughs> Although he may have shot 20 or maybe a few mm-hmm. more than 20 films for them, not all of them got released, and right. that's kind of one of the weirder aspects of the reason why this one's kind of been harder to see. Um, a handful of his productions actually received stateside release uh, undubbed for the Spanish-speaking market. In other words, they were released mm-hmm. kind of probably in Mexico, I'm assuming, in South America. But only the, inconf- the Inconfessible Orgies of Emmanuel received a dubbed release uh, on cable in a cut and rescored version entitled Emmanuel Exposed. Uh, now, in the past few years, a number of these Golden Films releases have come out uh, on video, which is really cool. There, uh, Severn Film released uh, the Emmanuel film, Emmanuel Exposed. Uh, they also released Macumba Sexual and or Macumba Sexual mm-hmm. and Mansion of the Living Dead and the Sexual Story of O. Uh, those all come from this same period during this production deal that he had with Golden Films. Right, for a for a, for a director like Franco, in a lot of ways it was a dream situation uh, because it it had those those two oh so elusive words, creative control for by and you know for uh, film well for any artist, creative control is just like that that beautiful term that you you seek and rarely ever receive. Unfortunately. Uh, the people who ran Golden Pictures and who gave him this creative control uh, didn't have a whole lot of money to back it up, and they also had no idea how to release films, apparently. Yeah, so what happened is that Franco noticed at some point that he was making all these films and turning them in, and they weren't exactly getting released. (laughs) Right, yeah. So what it was is there was definitely a cash flow problem, Mm -hmm. and uh, so not only were not all of them released promptly, some of them Mm -hmm. didn't get released at all, and now they're... I don't know if all of them have actually still gotten released. That's something I'd like to dig into. One of the things that I would say is that there's a lot of great information about this film in the extras on Mondo Macabro's Blu-ray. And most informative of all is the excellent 30-minute uh, conversation, or it's actually more like a verbal, uh, kind of mm-hmm. like a one-man mm-hmm. essay or one-man mm-hmm. show from Stephen Thrower, yeah. the, the yeah. excellent British uh, author of uh, the, the, the two-volume book about Jess Franco's movies called Murderous Passions, The Delirious Cinema of Jess Franco. And the, he, he does a great job of laying out the whole Golden Films thing mm. and why the films are so rare and so rarely seen. And it's wonderful to have him kind of walk you through this. Um, yeah, I've seen Stephen do this in a couple of other uh, DVDs recently, Blu-rays I've been watching that aren't necessarily Franco films, but other films where he sort of does the same format, where it's pretty much just him, you know, a- expounding on a film without not, yeah. not, not necessarily in an interview format, but just telling things behind the scenes and information about it. And he does a great job. Yeah, and it, and it adds immensely to uh, understanding mm-hmm. what the the circumstances of the, the making of the film and uh, maybe even a little bit of what uh, was going through Franco's mind during the during the production of all these movies. It's it's really cool. And uh, Stephen, Thor- it just reminds me that once again, I still have not yet gotten my hands on his damned book. Yeah. Uh, well, books. The I've got to get Murderous Passions. It's yeah. one of those things where yeah. I've just I've I've got I, I know that it's something I'll delve into and read big chunks of when I'm watching certain specific Jess Franco movies, and I can't believe I still haven't done it. (laughs) I am a slacker. I already have shit tons of books, and I still need more. Let's talk about plot. 
or the lack thereof. <laughs> I was going to say, and that discussion's already over, folks. <laughs> yeah. Night Has a Thousand Desires. Uh, Night Has a Thousand Desires is not a film that's ever going to be uh, criticized for being, for being plot-heavy, which is something that mm-hmm. I think is true of a lot of uh, Jess Franco films. Oh, yeah. And But but nevertheless, let's mm-hmm. take a run yes, through the... Uh, I tell you what, let's rattle off... Mm-hmm. The occurrences that you see played out before yeah, what, you what during know. the ninety-minute running time of mm-hmm. Night Has a Thousand Desires. How's that? Do you think that? You think that, think that yeah, works? Yeah, this, yeah, yeah, exactly. All right, in a Las Palmas hotel, uh, the Grand Irina, who's played by Lena Romay, uh, headlines a mind-reading act with her lover, the Great Fabian, who's played by uh, actor Daniel Katz. Now, what this act consists of, and it seems. I have to say, this isn't explored in the film to the degree that I thought it might be. But what it appears to be is that uh, Lena Romay's character, Irina, Irina, really can be put into a trance by mm-hmm. Fabian and really can see through his eyes. A form of uh, mind-melding or... Uh, uh, she really seems to be able to do that thing that so many mentalist acts mm-hmm. purport to be able to do. Mm-hmm. And of course, in, if, if, if you know anything about these mentalist acts where you have a blindfolded person on stage and uh, a cohort that goes out into the crowd and solicits uh, individual objects from people in the audience uh, and then through verbal cues yeah. is able to give the person, the blindfolded, blindfolded person on stage, an idea of what it is that they're holding. And at this point, we're kind of wondering if we're going to then, after this scene, or find out that that's what they've been doing, you know, that, that right. he is giving her verbal cues. Is, you know, we're kind of wondering that during this scene here. Right. But the longer it goes on, the more mm-hmm. you realize that there's absolutely no way right. that she could be doing that because one particular person in the audience gives her, I mean, I'm sorry, gives Fabian mm-hmm. a piece of paper. And she is able to tell him exactly what is written on the paper. So unless yeah. this fellow is mm. a plant, mm. then this is really happening. Mm. And as I say, I thought that was something that the film would explore more deeply. Mm. And in a, in, a, in a way, it kind of does, but definitely not in the way that you think it's mm. going to go. Right. And we'll get into uh, possible uh, uh, precedents for this idea and for that uh, a little later on. So... After that, that audience member hands uh, Fabian the piece of paper, uh, and by the way, the, what's on the piece of paper is really kind of a death threat. It says yeah. you will die in a few hours. So I think it has like you, have, yeah, you only have you have a few hours to live, something to that effect. Something yes, to that yes. effect. And after this, Irina starts experiencing disturbing sexual and violent nightmares in which she is directed by the mysterious Lorna to seduce and viciously murder a number of sexual partners who are unknown to her before these dreamlike sequences occur. Now, our first victim is a seedy jazz pianist who's working in the same uh, Las Palmas hotel there that uh, they are. Mm-hmm. And uh, after the first one, she starts having visions of this and thinks that they might be dreams, but she's not altogether sure. And it really upsets Irina quite a bit. She tries to talk to Fabian about it, but Fabian completely dismisses Irina's worries. But then as more of this starts to go on, she begins to believe that she's going out of her mind and seeks the advice of a psychiatrist. And, of course, this being a Jess Franco film, the psychiatrist is played played by Jess Franco. (laughs) 
which I love because it puts... He's always the doctor. He's always the psychiatrist. He's always yeah. the, you know, and why would you want Jess Franco as your doctor or your psychologist, but or your gynecologist, for God's sake. You oh, know, God. But he's always, <laughs> but he's, but he's always he's, it's always Jess. Well, we're talking about a man who has often been accused of using his camera as a gynecological tool. Exactly. So, maybe. <laughs> yeah. Well, nevertheless. So... Irina then discovers that the murders are actually occurring, that these are not things mm-hmm. that she's imagining. These aren't some or some series of hideous nightmares. And the question becomes, is Irina really a psychotic murderess or the victim of an elaborate setup, or are they all hallucinations? Is it all a dream? What's going on? And forgive me if I missed, you may have said this in your in your description, but the if not, we should point out that all the... Everyone she murders is somebody from this very first scene who is here yes. witnessing her act. You know, so, that, yeah. That's true. That's true. You're right. I did not mention that, but that that uh, that is something that's uh, relevant to the goings mm. on when every when everything kind of uh, comes to a head in the mm. final uh, five to ten mm. minutes of this film. Which led me in a lot of ways. I mean, again, one, if nothing else, this film does keep you at a chain, kind of trying to trying to guess what is going on, or not necessarily guess, but just kind of trying to understand, piece something together, try and figure out where, how things are happening in relation to one another. And, and in a lot of ways, right. I almost kind of wondered, as her victims became obviously the people who were in this first sequence, I began to wonder if that whole first sequence was not the beginning of the story, you know, but was like, almost like a, an after she was going to be like a, a an afterlife thing or like not even afterlife. Oh, just something where in other words like they were already dead and they were yeah. all, you're visiting, you know, something of that, that nature, which is not what happens. There's a lot of, a lot of ways along the line, I thought, Maybe this film is going this direction, and it doesn't, you know. That is true. Well, like many of Franco's films from, well, the 70s and the 80s, uh, well, shit, some of them even in the late (laughs) 60s, uh, this movie really kind of has like the barest of stories slash plots Mm -hmm. from which Franco dangles all the scenes that seem to actually interest him. Because let's be honest, uh, the plot that we're discussing here involving Irina and Fabian as these lo- these these lovers doing this mentalist act that may be mm-hmm. real, that mm-hmm. may be a real actual yeah. bit of mm-hmm. extrasensory perception for all mm-hmm. from all we can tell, encountering all of these uh, all of these people who she is then mysteriously having uh, sexual trysts with and then killing, but it does seem to be instigated by another person, another woman who was at mm-hmm. that initial performance that we witness. Another woman who uh, has odd understandings of what jewelry is for, because for some reason she feels the need to wear something on her forehead. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't know if that like helped her in what she was doing, but she does seem to be some kind of mesmerist herself, wow. uh, either controlling or forcing Irina mm-hmm. to uh, commit these murders. Now, the the thing that that's the plot line is you have Irina mm-hmm. uh, with these real powers, possibly. Uh, being mesmerized into murdering people, and what the hell is that all about? That's your that's your basic plot. That's your story. Mm-hmm. But the movie is ninety minutes long, and to be blunt, there's only about twenty to twenty five minutes of actual plot or story that, in this yeah, film. I think that's being generous. I, actually, they, they, yeah, yeah, you're right. That may be being generous. But some of the things. Well, look, before I get into some of the some of the things that he's dangling in front of you, mm-hmm. there are a couple of little interesting things in the movie that I think. Don't necessarily have to be there, but then I'm glad they're there because they add a little bit of texture to the characterizations. For instance, it appears that the relationship, the romantic relationship between Fabian and Irina, 
has kind of come to a kind of uh, a kind of dead spot, right? Because if you've ever been in a, and for younger people, maybe you haven't experienced this yet, but if you've ever been in a relationship that has lasted a long period of time, there comes a point where there's a sense of ennui. There's a, there's mm-hmm. a, there's a, a distance that has grown between the two people and uh, not necessarily a coldness, but a realization, if not by both people, at least one of them, that maybe the relationship is uh, either over or that something needs to be done in this needs to be addressed between the two of them or the relationship will falter and become less and less of what it was before. And it's especially painful when, as you said earlier, when one of them feels this and the other one doesn't. I think right. that's kind of what we've got here. Is it's, It seems like Fabian is pretty much done with uh, with Arena, but she is not. It seems like she's pretty attached to him. I mean, she seems to be definitely in love and devoted to him. Mm-hmm. And Fabian appears to have reached a point where the relationship may have continued for longer than it than he wanted it to because they do earn their living together. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He seems to kind of resent the fact that he that she's basically what earns his living, that she basically yeah, keeps him afloat. Yeah. Uh, now, see, that is something that isn't really part of the plot. It doesn't. Right. It's not an engine that drive thing drives things, but it does give you a sense of why his actions as the movie goes on might be happening in the way that they are. If there's anything plot-wise that I found myself liking in the film or appreciating, I guess the word would be, it's the fact, is the way that he keeps you guessing as to whether there's something supernatural going on or not. You know, He deliberately drops things in there that he's trying to just kind of tease you with a potentially supernatural explanation for all this, even to the point, I think, of naming the two women characters, Irina and Lorna, to make you think back to both Female Vampire and also uh, Lorna the, the Exorcist, Exorcist yeah. which were supernatural-based films, you know, to make think of that, the fact that at one point Fabian's reading the Necronomicon, you know, which right. it's just a not, you know, it's 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 really ended up being kind of a overall meaningless scene, but at the point that it comes to the film early on, and the fact that Irina keeps hearing this voice in a lot of scenes calling to her, which is actually Jess Franco's voice and not Fabian's, uh, leads you to also wonder if if. You know, there's something satanic. Is there something? Is, is there is there something? Because the film has, has as as you say, teased you with mm. the supernatural aspect of it, mm-hmm. or a possible, like I say, extrasensory perception mm-hmm. yeah. bit of thing. Yeah. It, it does lend it does lend itself very easily to making you kind of walk down the path of thinking, mm. oh well, then maybe this is a supernatural thing. What we're going to find out here mm. is that there is some kind of, uh, I don't know, maybe there's a witch's coven. Yeah, exactly, or something, something like that, that we mm-hmm. we don't know. Mm-hmm. So. That is interesting, but like I say, Franco uses the plot of these films to just kind of like as kind of like a clothesline oh, yeah. to dangle, dangle things that he's yeah, yeah to dangle images and to dangle uh, ideas and sequences that he's much more interested in than the plot. Yeah, because really the the, the strength of this what if 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 you feel that this film has strengths, it's pretty much going to be vis- the visuals. It's going to be pretty much visual strengths, I think, right. is, is what it has. And and uh, and if if you if you blinched a little when we when we we said this was made in the 80s and it conjured up images of shot badly shot on video, you know, films taking place in one room or something. This is actually, he did actually get to oh, work yeah. on with, he did actually get, this is shot on film, so rest at ease. Now, this is actually and it's a shot very, to, it shot widescreen and yeah, it is it's actually a, oh, it's a beautiful film. Beautifully it really shot. is. It really is. Very pretty. Uh, yeah. Those, those oh, people God, who, like, uh, those people who object and understandably object to what's often termed as uh, Jess Franco's obsession with the zoom lens 
uh, very under control in this film. Yeah. A lot of uh, there are zooms, but they're mm-hmm. they're uh, they're done for specific purpose. They're done in very controlled and careful ways. And honestly, it's just it's it's a well well made little film, regardless of whether or not you can enjoy mm-hmm. what Franco's presenting to you. This is not an incompetently made or mm-hmm. or. Uh, a sloppily edited or sloppily shot movie, and I think it I think it achieves a certain measure of uh, of eroticism too. You know, which I mean, it's not I, it's not you know for Franco anyway, it's not as coldly clinical and 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 you know passionless as 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 many <laughs> as often as often the sexuality in his films can be. Uh, you know, I actually think that 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 some of it is not too badly filmed. You know, oh so. no, I think I think it's I think it's beautiful. The thing is, though, if you get caught up in trying to to follow a plot in this yes, in a right. film like this, or kind of understand the story, uh, that's that's going to force you to to kind of ignore all the reasons that Franco made this film and yeah. a whole lot of other ones. Right. When you've seen as many as we have at this point, you get to this point, you 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 wonder. I mean, you really don't know. You know how much breath you can really waste on. Yeah. On, on oh, yeah. criticizing a film based on one of his films based on plot because it's just in so many times it's just not it's, important it's not, to him. It's <laughs> not his focus. Yeah, no. yeah. The this film in particular evidence is another of the the usual problems with Franco films that I've noticed. It's a fun problem and and mm. and and it's one that I'm I'm more amused by than irritated by. But it is a problem, and that is that he'll often follow his threadbare plots through to their ending. But then, kind of let the ending of the film collapse on itself oh boy, yeah. without anything that could really be deemed satisfying. <laughs> oh God, yeah. Now yeah. in this film, I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm, we're gonna go out of our way to not ruin the ending. But I will say, when we get to the ending, and it's a bit of a surprise. There's there's a nice surprise at the end. As a matter of fact, there's a couple of surprises. But when the credits roll, everything isn't resolved, and and really, kind of the metaphorical knife is still to the metaphorical throat. Yeah. Uh, yeah or maybe yeah. I could even say that literally. So. <laughs> But it, it is. Let's just say, without getting in, giving away again, let's just say that a character suddenly becomes massively important in the very last scene, and it's a character we've only seen once before early in the film. And so I'll say that was a problem with me because I felt that character should have had a little bit more weight in the film to at least make the ending not seem so like just. Out of blue, you know, strange, so just or, like ninety minute point is reached. Let's end this. You know? Well, see, that's that, that's not even that's not even my objection with the ending. And it's not like I say, it's not really, it's not, it's not an objection so much as a a, a mild caveat yeah. for yeah. those uninitiated, which is that. <laughs> Uh, yeah, they just roll credits. We, we've we've often made jokes about Hammer monster movies mm-hmm. rolling the credits over oh, the geez. over the still spurting monster's <laughs> wound. You know, it's still thrashing around and possibly able to injure somebody. And it's like the end. Get him out of here. It's roll like, the credits. It's, it's tea time. Let's go. Yeah, exactly. time to go, folks. But in this one, it's something very similar because yeah. it, there, there's oh. a there's a part of me that goes. Oh wait, hold on. I know you're you're, I, I, you're thinking hold on, hold on, and I'm, you're like hang on. <laughs> no, but, I'm with you totally. <laughs> but that being mm. that being said, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm I'm willing to own up to that mm. fact and the fact that I, I, did, I okay, I'll, I'll say this: I don't find the ending unsatisfying. Mm. I do find the I do find it very much in line with uh, a lot of the endings of a lot of Jess Franco films yeah. from the '70s. Mm. I've made jokes a lot about mm. uh, how uh, uh, I think it's. Uh, she killed an ecstasy where the story gets wrapped up at the end. The cops figure <laughs> oh, yes. out what's going on, and the cops are like, "Well, cool!" And they get in their car and they drive away. And, and they, it's they, like, they, "No, no, there are corpses there." Where are you going? Where are you? What are you doing? I don't. Where, where the? Where do you? What, are you yeah. off to get drunk now? You need to get the freaking corner in here. And, but that is not this film. Yeah. It's just that there's a similar feeling of. Yeah. Once Franco mm. has done the bare minimum mm. to wrap up the quote unquote 
plot or story, mm-hmm. uh, he's he wants to get the hell out of Dodge. He wants to get to the next film is what he wants to get to. Exactly. You know, you, he yeah, wants you, to get to the next movie. Well, you said uh, earlier, you said the phrase that I think sums up as you talked about, you know, the clothesline to hang whatever catches his interest. And, yeah. and really, you do very much get the sense when he makes these films that, you know, I feel like the way Franco's mind works, he sees a location, he sees an image, he sees a bit of scenery, he sees what would be really awesome to have happening in front of it. You know, a long corridor of buildings that make kind yeah. of a natural tunnel. Oh, wouldn't oh, it be great oh, to see yeah. Lena, Ro- Lena Romay strolling slowly down that, you know, down I'll the, film down, it. Down the center line yeah. of that. I'll yeah, film yeah, it, yeah. and then I'll figure out later where what it I'm gonna do it. Where, the, where it yeah, fits or it what, it, go. what it means it's or like how I'm going to place it. Yeah, yeah. And to his credit, he has a great eye for incredible images, incredibly yes. captivating. Uh, yes, there's just there there are shots in this film that I just absolutely love. You know, that are just amazing. Most obvious thing about a lot of these Franco films of the the Franco films of the type that we're talking about, right? Which is that, uh, in general, I would refer to them as languid. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. They're yeah. they're very carefully paced. Mm-hmm. They're deliberately paced. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were angry with them, and in the past I have been that angry person, mm-hmm. the word you would lo- use would be slow. You might even use the word <laughs> goddamn slow and <laughs> ram it all together as one big word. The thing about these movies, these Franco movies, that you have to understand is the reason those sections are so long are not to draw the running time out or to make you feel as if you're being tested to see if you have the endurance to make it through this fucking scene. What is happening is these are the sequences that Jess Franco is actually interested in. These are the areas in which he can be the art film director Mm -hmm. that he kind of, in a lot of ways is. Mm -hmm. And don't get me wrong. He's a, he's a, He's a pulp filmmaker. He's a mm-hmm. comic book fan. He is mm-hmm. a lot of different kinds of filmmaker. But during those sequences, without the use of weird lighting or psychedelia or rotating cameras or you know pinwheel lights or colored gels or anything like that, Franco is attempting to move you, the viewer, into the kind of dreamlike mindset that those characters are in in those sequences. He is Mm -hmm. attempting to draw you in and have you feel the same sense of either ennui or languor or just just basic breathless stillness at times. Mm -hmm. The, 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 The generalized lust that creeps out of someone who's in a room with someone they're physically attracted to in the very slow motion way in which mo- in, in which the one person who makes a sexual move on another will carefully do that, will carefully draw their lips across the flesh of the other person or lick an area, a non-erotic area of the person's body to see if there's a reaction, to see if there's a, a, a yes or a no in the mm. physical reaction of the person they're dealing with. These are the things that interest Franco. Mm-hmm. And he comes at them in a lot of different ways in, a, in different films. And in this film, there are a number of these kinds of things. Uh, one of the things that I would like to one day sit down and really put my mind to is the question of, the eroticism of nudity in his mm. films, because mm. in a lot of his movies, and this is an example of it, uh, this film is definitely an example of it, mm. is that the nudity 
is not presented as erotic until those dreamlike states take place. And he mm-hmm. goes out yeah, of his yeah, way in this yeah. film to present Lena Romay and the uh, Daniel Katz, the actor playing Fabian, completely nude. Totally yeah. nude, yeah. in bed together, not having sex, but having conversations. It's, mm-hmm. They are completely nude when we are learning about Fabian's uh, sense of the relationship having reached a rather large dead space. And right. you start to, you start mm-hmm. to see in his reactions and what he's saying and even in his body language that he's pulling away from her. And you don't even need the dialogue that comes later in the movie when Irina says that they haven't had sex for a long time and she moves to to initiate a sexual uh, a sexual act with him. And they're totally nude in this, this sequence and it is completely unerotic. Mm-hmm. Now, don't get me wrong, there's absolutely no way to look at a, a beautiful nude mm-hmm. woman without mm-hmm. feeling something because mm-hmm. there it's it's a she's a uh, Lena Romay is a beautiful creature period right. end of story but this is not an erotic scene it is right. not a sex scene and there's absolutely nothing about the sequence that would lend you any hook to hang masturbatory fantasies on this is not well, one this is one like a, com- a couple like couples do I mean couples who right. are incredibly comfortable with each other and live together a long time sometimes they're just nude next to each other not necessarily for sex I mean they're right. just used to seeing each other naked so as I've said I, I, I'm interested now that I've seen enough Jess Franco films something that two decades ago I would have sworn I would never do <laughs> I'm interested now in how he presents nudity as erotic and as non-erotic. And mm-hmm. you see both in this movie. Yeah. Later on in the movie, he presents a certain amount of nudity, but also a certain amount of, in the same sequence, of uh, a very erotic... Uh, it's a very erotic sequence, but uh, one of the women in the scene is never nude. Mm-hmm. She's just partially covered. Mm-hmm. And there's... Yeah. Th- in those sequences are incredibly erotic. But there's not much nudity at all in the scene and there's a I'm not sure that Franco ever sat down and like plotted out how he wanted to structure the amount of nudity in a film or whether one sequence or another would have nudity in it but I think that it kind of speaks to something that's in Franco's mind when he's setting up and shooting these dreamlike sequences of that let's be honest commingle sex and murder Mm -hmm. very very carefully yeah I think that he is trying to decide whether or not the nudity is to titillate or if the nudity is there uh, as a distraction or if the nudity is there as just the natural human ways in which we exist or even if it's just there to show vulnerability. And I think that um, one day, if I have the time and the inclination and someone is willing to pay me to do it, I will sit down and write a lengthy piece about the ways in which Franco uses nudity in his movies to different effect. Yeah, yeah. and I think uh, I think all three of the, uh, or maybe more than three, actually, maybe I'm miscounting, but anyway, the murder sequence seg- set pieces, right. each one of them I think is very interesting how it chooses to do it. I think they're all interesting, not in the way... Dario Argento set pieces are, you know, it's not all about technical sleight of hand, you know, it's, it's, right. it's but the, it's more about the things that he chooses as to make kind of the centerpiece or the idea behind the, how the murder is going to unfold, the tension he builds, basically the way the, the camera frames the room, you know, or frames what is happening, you know, is, is, and, and just uh, everything is 
each one of the sequences I think is very interesting. In the first time that she kills, which is an older man who's another kind of inter- or musician that who was also there in the first opening sequence, and she kills him in his hotel room. And one of the things that's interesting about that sequence is it's almost told from his point of view. And she yeah, yeah. pops in and out and disappears and reappears to the point that we're kind of wondering if we're in his dream, you know, rather than hers. Right. Which is a fascinating way to show that. And then in the in the scene that I think you're referring to is really probably the erotic, most erotic set piece of the film, which is her passing the whether where she's getting high with. Uh, yeah, it's basically kind of a, a sexual foursome. Yeah, foursome. Yeah. And the two women, the way that their look is. So obviously intended to mirror one another, and the way they're 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 positioned on the couches, the way the colors of what they're wearing, right. everything is incredibly well thought out, and the way the camera moves around the room as they pass the joint around, and and each person becomes a different focal point. Um, I think it's uh, I, I think well, I think the framing, of, I think the framing yeah. in that sequence is oh, astonishing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and and so but a lot of it appear, a lot of it is based too on the on screen magnetism and charisma of the actors that he chooses, and they're very well chosen. They do very right. well in these scenes. some amazing faces, and of course, yeah. there's something at least at least for me, and I'm assuming for millions of other people as well, considering the length of our career. There's something magnetic about Lena Ramay's face. Yeah. Now yeah. I could talk all day long about uh, the lusciousness of her body and the, mm-hmm. and the curves and the the yeah 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 yeah, <laughs> but. There is a, a, a magnetism and, a, and, a, and a, mm. a beautiful photogenic quality to Lena Romay's face that whether she's uh, uh, kissing another woman mm. or uh, pouting or uh, worried or concerned or curious or trying to appear to be completely vacuous. Mm. Uh, it doesn't matter because there's something about it. You just can't take your eye off of her. And uh, in those sequences where uh, you reach a point where she becomes uh, at times mm. slightly predatory. Mm-hmm. And at times uh, uh, it's clear that she's not sure what, her, what she's going to do next. There's that, that absolute, in that sequence you're talking about the, the foursome sequence mm. where they're, where they're getting high, the, the moment where she's, uh, leaned over on that table, and it's, it's mm-hmm. beautiful. It's used as the yeah. the key art for the for mm-hmm. the for the mm-hmm. Blu-ray, right? Uh, and she's putting her head down across her her arms on the table, and there's just something absolutely beautiful and mesmerizing about the way she looks up and to one side of the camera. She's not looking directly to the camera, mm-hmm. but I could just get lost in those eyes. And there's something about that quality in her that allows her to play roles like this where you're unsure for the entire length of the film whether or not you can trust her. Yeah. Whether you know if she's uh, aware of what she's doing, right. if she's being manipulated completely, or if she's uh, somehow complicit in what is occurring. It's fascinating. And she's very, very good at this kind of stuff. You you can watch it. You can watch her in a number of Franco films that are that are uh, much more pl- much more plot heavy, mm-hmm. and see that she was also. She, I mean, she she was a good actress. She could convey uh, dialogue very well. Mm-hmm. She could do a number of different things. But it's clear that what Franco wanted to use her for, she was more than just his muse. She was also a very talented woman yeah. who, because of her natural photographic photogenic ability or her, her just physicality. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> conveys a number of things that I don't know. Uh, I think that often you're right. 
I, I, you're right about the, I, the idea of Franco seeing something and it, mm. putting an image in his head and then him constructing mm. a story, mm-hmm. often a story he's told before, and kind of overlaying it over some of these images mm. and then constructing the film outward from that. And I think that almost always for a long period of his life, what the center image mm. of those ideas in his head was Lena Romay's face. And yeah. often her nude body, I will have to yeah. admit. So. Yeah, well, and her ability and her willingness to just go for it, you know, whenever he oh, needed yeah. her to go for it. It's the same thing we kind of we saw in uh, Lorna, Lorna the Exorcist, some of those scenes where her ability to go to emotional depths is uh, uh, can make you very uncomfortable at times. You know, it's, it's yeah. so raw. Yeah. And it's 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 there's not there's not much of that there's not much if any of that in this except in I think there's just a couple of times just just kind of abruptly and I think it's more stunning it's more shattering to us just because everything is so quiet and languid leading up to that and then she just suddenly you know let's let's go yeah yeah yeah, but you get the feeling like that there was nothing she wouldn't have done for this man you know for Franco you feel like she would have crawled across broken glass if it suited his I mean if his I mean if he needed it for his story that she would go to that. She would go to any depths, you know, to to what he needed her to do, you know, and and uh, so she was in what an incredible, uh, you know, how incredible lucky he was to find her to to, to work with. I, I I'm, I'm always amazed at the longevity of their relationship. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, together from sometime in the late '70s mm-hmm. as a couple, mm-hmm. uh, all the way until um, death took one of them, and. Right. Mm-hmm. And really, in a lot of ways, beyond. I mean, they yeah. never they never left each other, and right. I think there's right. there's something kind of sweet and uh, interestingly perverse about the entire thing. <laughs> sure, and you certainly don't, and we certainly don't want to portray. You know, often she is referred to as his muse, and and what I said a minute ago did not mean any chance that he was some kind of Svengali controlling you know the act because she was a very intelligent, very artistic woman, very creative yeah. woman. Yeah, and I do think it was a creative collaboration, you know, between the two of them. I don't think that. Um, a lot of what Franco accomplished on film that he was proud of would have been possible without Lena Romay as uh, the centerpiece of his world. Yeah, I agree. To, to point out that uh, recently uh, Tim Lucas on his uh, video watch blog made note of the fact that something finally hit him watching this film on Blu-ray which is something that hadn't occurred to him uh, any other time previous which was that this movie's the, the bare beginnings of this film are kind of based on a, a Cornell Woolrich novel called Night Has a Thousand Eyes and of course once you realize that Mm-hmm. Uh, the title of this film makes sense because he's drawing directly on that. But th- interesting enough, interestingly enough, really, all that Franco's drawing on is the title and the uh, basic idea 
of there being a mentalist act mm-hmm. that uh, may or may not have actually been able to read someone's mind and learn something very dangerous. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's the first sequence in this movie. And I will say this: uh, there was a film also made from it uh, called yeah. "Night as a Thousand Eyes," which I have not seen, and I really, I really ought to. Sounds like it's a very good film noir, but. Franco uses that idea and then goes off and tells his own kind of story. Mm-hmm. And it should be said that uh, he's done this before. This is a, this is very similar to some of his earlier films. The uh, mind control stuff, I think he first played around with that in The Diabolical Dr. Z. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the story can almost kind of be a remake. As a matter of fact, it probably kind of is a remake of The Nightmare Comes at Midnight. I'm sorry, The Nightmare Comes at Night mm-hmm. uh, from, the, from the 70s. And there's a little bit of uh, Franco's film Succubus as well from uh, 1969, I think. So this is a story, this is an idea that uh, Franco's played with in numerable, numerous movies, and he's, he's honestly played with different little bits of stuff that you're going to find in this film, in earlier movies, and in some later movies as well. And that's something that uh, he did. Remember, Jess Franco was not just a filmmaker. Uh, if... Certain things had not gone in certain ways in his life. Jess Franco would have been a full-time jazz musician. And as a matter of fact, he still was a jazz musician while he was a filmmaker and is responsible for a good deal of the music, not just in this film, but in a number of his own movies. Uh, there are CDs out there, if you'd like to seek them out, of music with uh, of Jess Franco playing with uh, a jazz ensemble. Well, we know what the, you mentioned the the book that was uh, provided a little inspiration for, for this. We know how much he loved pulp novels and and mystery novels and that sort of thing. And yeah. I, I did think I did like the scene in this film where where Lena's reading a a novel and the sequence that she's reading to herself is about a girl being controlled like a puppet. You know, which right. which is which is a nice callback to what what you know reference to what's going on in the film. Right now, of course. Don't don't let us give you the uh, any indication that this movie has anything other than a very thin narrative because oh, yeah. that's yeah. that is exactly what it has a very thin narrative. Oh, yeah. uh, this movie is primarily about imagery and it's mm-hmm. primarily about something that I think Franco, like most good filmmakers, is much more interested in than plot or story, and that would be emotions. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, honestly, what sells a just Franco movie is the emotions that he's able to elicit from his audience. Uh, and it's not always what you would expect. It's not always like the mirroring experience of a lot of different movies where they're uh, using different filmmaking techniques to elicit an increased heart rate or mm-hmm. to, to cause some kind of excitement or tension. Uh, you know, through using artificial means, and, you know, smart editing and mm-hmm. uh, certain types of music that are used to kind of get your blood pumping. What Franco's attempting to do is different. It's, it's, most of the time, he's just trying to drop you into or lull you into a mindset that is kind of a different cinematic language. It's kind of a thoughtful but otherworldly mindset. It's it's delirious in the, the truest sense of that word. It is an attempt. It's an attempt to get you to the point where you wouldn't say that you necessarily understand, but where you at least enjoy the experience of having this film happen to you. Mm-hmm. Often you have to learn what kind of. Uh, uh, often you kind of have to learn to uh, disassociate yourself from what you would normally expect, oh, yeah. or really kind of require from a movie when you're watching these things. In these movies that we're talking about here, like the like this one, uh, the narrative is not the point. The narrative is there to allow him just you know to do these things that he's much more intrigued by. 
He's attempting to share an experience with you that isn't just cinematic, but that almost transcends, if done properly and is effective, transcends watching a film. Mm -hmm. It becomes an experience that is much more emotional and, in a way, uh, a much more effective and long-lasting thing. And it's uh, it's not going to work for you necessarily every time, but the few times that it does work, it becomes easier to understand on future viewings of other films in which he's oh, he's trying to do the certainly. same thing, yeah. and you start to not just see echoes or uh, uh, kind of one to one comparisons with past movies and or movies that you've just seen in the past, even if he made them at a different time, either before or after the one you're currently watching, that allows you to understand more and easier what he is trying to do to you. And you know, we make a lot of jokes about you know crazy old Uncle Jess and yeah. things like that. And in a way, he kind of is this weird, <laughs> this weird guru attempting yeah. to bring cinema into a different, um, a different world. He's trying to use mm. cinema to do something slightly different. And that doesn't change the fact that not all of his films are do- are done in that style. Uh, he's more than capable and willing yeah. to to do uh, oh, yeah. horror films and thrillers and all kinds of different things. He'll make a Jack the Ripper movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'll make a, a, a gothic a, a gothic romance. He'll make a monster movie. He'll do all kinds of different things. But the types of movies we're talking about, like this one here, he's doing something that is generally recognizable as part of the art film world. He's attempting to use sound and image to elicit an emotional response that is not necessarily connected to following a story. And if it works on you, it's magic. It's breathtaking. And it kind of, I, at times, it's I, it almost feels as if I'm, I'm transcending um, just my own life. I'm transcending what I see around myself as these things work on me. And when they don't work, it's like watching two rocks bang together in front of you (laughs) and someone attempting to tell you it's music. When it works, it's beautiful. When it doesn't, it's noise. Mm -hmm. So if you don't enjoy this type of thing, I hate to say it, I'm going to have to put this out there, and I I, I don't like having to use this phrase, but I'm going to fall back on something that uh, I read long ago from Tim Lucas, which is that... The kind of the best way to understand Jess Franco films is to just try to watch all of Jess Franco films. Yeah, I mean it's 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 easy. There's no other filmmaker that people say those kind of things. But I say like, oh, you saw three films, you hated them. Oh, you saw five films, you hated them. Watch another one. You watch know? A, yeah, oh, watch, you hated watch, the, you hated the first ten you saw. Watch a couple more. Watch, go, wait, watch wait, a couple wait. more, and then go back and watch those first couple <laughs> that you and, tried to watch. And yeah. it works that way because it's weird. It yes. really does. It really works that way because because uh, boy, I wasn't real crazy about Franco. My first couple of exposures to him too, but 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 a classic example. I mean, I think the first one I ever saw was probably Virgin Among the Living Dead uh, yeah. when it played actually on television in incredibly cut form, of course, and an incredibly chopped up edited version, but. You know that was that was my first time to see one of his films, and I sure was not impressed at all. Now I really like the film, so I'll, I'll have to have to admit myself that it had to. I had to delve and keep watching, and I probably I think I figured it out that you know as much as I can tell with all the crazy retitlings and everything. But I, I've I was working on as I was getting ready for the show, I kind of went back and 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 figured out that 
I think I've seen somewhere in the neighborhood of 25 to 30 Franco films, which turns it, which roughly approximates, that's about 15% of what he made, you know. Yeah. Uh, but I can totally, you know, I can totally see that. And there's some that I want to go back and rewatch because they were watched early on. And I've since feel like I'll probably, now that I've seen him do, do some, tell the same story again a few times, some of the same motifs crop up, I get more what I think he was and what he tried to do. Um, you know, so yeah, it's very unusual. I have no idea how many of Jess Franco's movies I've seen. <laughs> There's a part of me that kind of wants to sit down with a whole list and mm-hmm. try to and try to dope mm-hmm. out how many I've seen. Mm-hmm. I suspect it's probably in somewhere in the thirty to forty range mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. I've sought out a yeah. number that are kind mm-hmm. of more difficult to come by and that you have to kind of mm-hmm. get by dubious means if right, you right. know what I mean. Special yeah. antenna, of course. <laughs> but uh. I don't. I don't. I, I at this point in time, I don't know how many I've seen, and I don't remember at what point it was, and I can't. Mm. I can't mm. nail down mm. which film of this type that it was that I was watching, and suddenly it all clicked. Suddenly it all came together for me. Uh, it might have been Nightmare Comes at Night, but I can't precisely mm. remember mm. because I was going through a phase where I was watching two or three mm. a week for a little mm. while, trying to absorb a few. Because they just kept coming out on mm-hmm. uh, on DVD there for a while, and yeah. suddenly it all clicked. But the thing is, is that every time we talk about a Jess Franco film on the podcast, or even if I'm just talking about a Franco film with anyone on any show, <laughs> or, or just mm-hmm. just in my normal life, mm-hmm. where I you know I pigeonhole mm-hmm. someone and start start mm-hmm. badgering them about Jess Franco, and they know nothing mm-hmm. about it, and I I sound like a crazy person. Uh, not that I don't sound like a crazy person <laughs> now. Well, I know, yeah. I know. But it's kind of hard to uh, I, I try, but it's kind of hard to get across the reasons about why I uh, I get a lot of joy from these stranger films of his, and I always feel as if I've kind of failed to get across what I mean, no matter what I do, no matter how mm. I phrase it, no matter how I say it. And part of this, I have to admit, is the feeling that I'm kind of doing something that doesn't really have a firm goal line. There, there, there isn't a spot where I can I can stand and then turn and look around and say, ah, success, yes, because because I don't know it, because it takes a long time as you were just as you were just talking about the fact that it takes some time yeah. to get for each individual to get to a point where it suddenly all clicks in their head and some of those those odd parts come together and form a strange whole of their own mm. that's kind of part and parcel of a number of different films mm. that work together for some strange reason. And it, what I'm dealing with here, I guess, to a degree, is uh, a bit of what I'd call the zeal of the convert. Mm-hmm. In other words, much like any religious fanatic who's mm-hmm. kind of switched his allegiance from, uh, I let's say, non-affiliated to, uh, boy, I am affiliated. Right. Uh, I'm, I'm a Jess Franco film fan, and even if there are movies in his long career that I don't think are... That, 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 let's just say the ones that I think are terrible, mm. there are ones that I really love and that stay with me and that I want to share. And I mm. want to share that love. I really, really do. And it's a bit of a, I, 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 I have to admit, it's it's me proselytizing. It's me evangelizing. Mm. It's the convert trying to bring more people into the fold, trying to bring people into the church, <laughs> the, the, the mighty <laughs> church of the worship of Jess Franco films. <laughs> And uh, being a convert is is it's difficult because people are gonna look at you weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's like any cult. You know, <laughs> it, it takes a lot of time before that thing can be honestly said to not be just some kind of weird ass thing before somebody just accepts mm-hmm. it as a religion. But right now, folks, I want to invite you to join us. 
<laughs> if you hate every Jess Franco film you've ever seen, well, that just means you haven't seen the right one. Let's remember. <laughs> there are a number of his movies that'll kind of ease you into place. You can start with The Awful Dr. Orloff or The Diabolical yeah. Dr. Z. You can start with the softer films, the easier mm. films, and then ease your way. Ignore the X-rated ones. <laughs> yeah. I- ignore, yeah. Ignore the porn films. There are those. And you don't want to... You don't want to leap right into that unless you're wearing a hazmat suit. That's, <laughs> yeah. that's a dangerous concept. You want to be very careful of that. But if you are interested in uh, in being in the church of Jess Franco, uh, we have we have some pamphlets for you. And um, I don't wear a tie, not not generally, so you don't have to fear me. But if we pass around cigarettes and uh, saxophones and uh, and uh, <laughs> we, we play we play uh, somewhat atonal jazz records in the background and and, and try to discern whether or not uh, the uh, musicians were drunk or high. That's yeah. that's really that's really what we do. But uh, if you find yourself curious about this stuff, if if we're to, us talking about this film here or uh, any of the other Jess Franco films we've talked about on other Beyond Nashies uh, have made you curious. Really, honestly, allow this to be a push. Mm-hmm. Uh, all joking aside, mm-hmm. uh, allow this to be the push that 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 gets you to try one or two or three of them out. Mm-hmm. Uh, give them a shot. As I say, ease into it with some of the the more strictly narrative things. Mm-hmm. Uh, even something like the Bloody Judge will at least give you a, a, a an idea of what it's like to see something put together by this man. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was Eugenie that did it for me. Uh, Eugenie, uh, really? Well, the, really? not Eugenie, uh, the, the one that um, Eugenia, Eugenia, or Eugenia the Sod. Eugenie, the, the story okay. of the story of which is sub, the story of her descent into perversion. I think yeah, is the yeah, full yeah. title. Then I think I probably just saw it. And I'd seen a few Francos before that, and and it was like, and I was like, not really interested in delving a whole lot further. <laughs> but I was curious by the fact that Christopher Lee was in this, and being right. a Christopher Lee fanatic, I was like, well, I've got to see this, and I think that's the first one that uh and it still may be my favorite franco and all but it's uh but it's the it's the first one that grabbed me like oh okay this guy can make uh, this guy can make something good that's a good jumping off point i mean mm-hmm. uh and that is uh christopher lee loved him christopher yeah. lee considered him to be one of the best directors yeah. he ever worked with yeah. yeah and he worked with him n- numerous yeah. times i think they made five or six movies mm-hmm. together over mm-hmm. over the years and i guess that says something because christopher yeah. lee was Certainly, an intelligent and thoughtful man. Yeah. Well, it actually, and in speaking of Christopher Lee, in in researching for this film and just the stuff that looking through his filmography again, I'd kind of forgotten that there was that, and also watching the the listen to uh, Stephen Thrower's uh, presentation on the Blu-ray, and I'd kind of forgotten that there was that weird '80s period where he sort of sort of gotten into this direct-to-video action film sort of world compl- yeah. that had some big names like Christopher Lee and other people working I had in these films. Completely and I completely about that, and I've not yeah. seen any of those. Yeah, neither have I. Those know, are all from just, uh, yeah. those are all from the late '80s. Yeah, yeah, after this, after the Golden Films uh, mm-hmm. thing finally fell apart in like eighty four, eighty five, mm-hmm. and uh, I've not seen any of those. Yeah, yeah, I haven't either. But it's I'd love to. I mean, it's just because it's such a strange thing that he sort oh, of wait, found wait, himself wait. working in that. Wait, uh, that may not be true. I think I may have seen a couple of the. Well, the ones I've seen, I think, are kind of more like jungle prison films mm-hmm. from that period, mm-hmm. and uh, de- I definitely wouldn't call them action movies. Although they're they're you know people toting machine guns around. So maybe maybe I just told a fib. Mm-hmm. But at this point, I have seen, I have seen so many damn Jess Franco films, and in in keeping with this, it was about a year ago that I started that I saw the ones that I'm thinking of, and it's because uh, there are two films 
that use uh, almost like 60% or 70% of the exact same footage, mm. but tell a completely different story. <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. the other footage that really like tells mm. the tale and does, you know, completely mm. changes the end mm. of things. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's the same film footage, mm. but the story is completely different. Uh, it, 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 and that's another interesting aspect of Jess Franco. Trust me, it's a deep well, and you will fall <laughs> down it, and you will never come out. Just like me, maybe now I'm just warning you to stay out of the church. I don't know. <laughs> um, well, a couple of, uh, I know we're getting close to our summing up point here, and I was just got a couple other things I wanted to mention, because you, I, I think we haven't really said directly addressed the, the soundtrack on this, and you, oh, you yeah. did mention the fact that, of him reusing footage while well, he reuses some of the music from this film uh, and it's beautiful music I can see why he'd want to reuse it because it's probably one of the, some of the more beautiful themes you know that, that uh, have been in Franco films I think it's from these from Female Vampire that it's from some, uh, some of the music is from Female Vampire yeah some of it is not really music per se There there's incredible sound collages that this film uses and I find most of them to be fascinating um you know he uses them in places where you wouldn't think he would sometimes over the erotic scenes you know because he's building the tension over what's going on here you know is and and so uh it's a combination again we mentioned earlier his voice is he uses his own voice to kind of continue to seem like something speaking to arena possibly from the nether you know the nether realms or whatever but uh the netherworld the uh the darkness you know and and uh uh, but I think it works to great effect for the most part. Um, what's funny is the only thing sound-wise in the film that actually really kind of grated on me and bothered me was the the sounds of passion, you know, in the uh, the, the the scene where where uh, Arena is seducing the younger guy. I think it's the last person that she kills in the film, you know, and then that scene, things like that, where it's just kind of basically whoever's doing the dubbing are just kind of doing breathing and sounds of moaning and passion. And that's the only, that's the only part where I really found it started to get, <laughs> getting on my nerves. You know, all the other grating, yeah. crazy, weird collage stuff I thought was real effective. But at those scenes, I was just like, okay, enough. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, if uh, there's a, there, I saw a piece of information online and I'm not sure if it's true, but it wouldn't surprise me considering, uh, please understand folks, that this film is uh, only available in Spanish. There are excellent English subtitles on the Blu-ray, but uh, from what I understand, uh, I think uh, the Fabian character was uh, was dubbed by Antonio Mayans. Oh, that's so interesting. So there's your Nashi connection. There's a Nashi connection. If that's you need right, a Nashi yeah. connection for this to be a, a beyond Nashi mm-hmm. officially, not just a, a Spanish film, a, mm-hmm. a film produced in in the the eighties mm-hmm. in Spain. Antonio Mines is apparently That's the voice of the great Fabian. In this and film. Antonio Mines was in quite a lot of Franco films. He, did, yes, he, he was. was in several. So, um, but uh, yeah, the, I, I um, one more crazy thought this film brought to me here. And Franco's films are good at bringing crazy thoughts to your head. So I'm going to have to throw this one out here. This is, <laughs> this is one everybody's going to be thinking on for a while because I love. <coughs> we've talked about this long. You know, he found this location where there are these buildings that are stretching away that make kind of this natural tunnel. So we get a lot of scenes of yeah. Arena way back in the distance, and she's walking slowly forward. And uh, first time we see it, or well, one of the first times we see it is uh, right after the, as you said, the foursome there that starts as a sex scene, drug scene, ends up as a murder scene. And I love the way that the very we the very next thing we see is Arena walking down this corridor, and she looks like we think she's wearing, at least I thought she was wearing a bloodstained dress. And then once she comes closer, you realize it's actually just the pattern of the gown that she's wearing that's got all this, like, half of it's red, and then it has all these flowers that are splotches on it. But it's a beautiful, it's a wonderful visual concoction because you really think for half the time she's coming to her, you think that she's wearing a bloodstain where she's just murdered these people. Right. But then a little later, we see her do the same walk, and she's wearing 
A one-piece. What would you describe French, it as? Is it's, it's, it's a one-piece swimsuit. It's a French. It's a French, very cut. French cut. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because it essentially in the back is 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 nothing more than a thong. Right. Uh, but it does. I mean, it does cover all mm. of the. Uh, it does cover her genitals. It does cover her breasts. Mm. And it really is just kind of a black one-piece uh, swimsuit, uh, very much in the, in keeping with what would be, I guess, the style on you know the French Riviera or mm. a Spanish beach. So <laughs> what I thought. Too after seeing her, and I thought, you know, if that were red, she'd make a pretty awesome Vampirella. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, and and then the thought came to like uh, Jess Franco making a Vampirella film. Wouldn't that have been? Can you imagine? The, well, it, it makes me wonder. <laughs> the it, mind well, just it, depending on which way he went, Did, yeah. if he went full pulp horror yeah. with it, mm-hmm. and and went in that direction, it could be one entertain one kind of entertaining. Mm-hmm. Right. But if he went in the Lord of the Exorcist, Nightmare yeah. Comes at Night, <laughs> uh, Succubus, uh, Vampires, Lesbos direction, mm-hmm. God only knows what it could have been like. It could have been. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, around let's say circa 1975 to about 1979, if he'd done a Vampirella film, oh. Lena Romay as Vampirella, oh, I might have lost my mind. I mean, me so, too, yeah. me too. Yeah. Forey Ackerman might have too, but... <laughs> Forey Ackerman would have lost his mind, yeah. I think uh, um, you mentioned that we mentioned Stephen Thrower's uh, as an extra on uh, his discussion on it as an extra on the Blu-ray. One of the other neat extras is the little, um, I guess it was taken from older, like a television series, I believe it was. I don't know if you got to oh, watch the... Oh, the, uh, the episode of, uh, of Eurotica. Eurotica, yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's, a, it's a, 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 a television series of like half-hour documentaries uh, lots of interview footage with different people who worked with Jess Franco. Uh, he did one on Jess Franco. He did one on Paul Nash. He did, mm-hmm. and they end up including these. And these were these were produced by Pete Toombs and some of his some of mm-hmm. his partners, who is the man behind Mondo Macabro. Mm-hmm. So these uh, episodes of these turn up on uh, theme work, theme appropriate. Blu-ray and DVD releases from the company. So. But there are interviews with the actress Monica Swin, who was in several Franco films, in this episode of Eurotica. And a quote that I absolutely love is when she's describing Franco, she says he was sick, he's, he was sick with cinema, sick with <laughs> cinema and meaning yeah. his obsession with, you know, with, with how much he just filmed and filmed and filmed and couldn't stop and, and would just plow through projects yeah. to get to. And I think it's a great way to describe it because it's one thing to be driven to create, you know, as someone like, say, Woody Allen is who like, you know, makes a, has made a film every year of his life and never stopped filming in that respect. But Franco took it to the other level that, you know, I think sick with cinema is just a great way to describe yeah. it. I think it almost is like an addiction to filming. And, and 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 I think that if anyone is out there planning another book on Franco, that's your title right there. Well, I mean, I there is Sick a, with Cinema is the title. Sick, sick, yeah, well, Sick with Cinema. Yeah, I think Jess, it's a great title. Jess Franco, Sick, sick with, with Cinema. cinema. Yeah, yeah, that's it. That is a great title, <laughs> right? But you're, you're, you're writing, calling it an obsession. You're not, mm. and you're far from the first person to describe mm. what Jess Franco was like as a filmmaker, as obsessive. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the the there's a great line, uh, I, and I'll have to paraphrase because yeah. I can't remember. I can't remember it verbatim. Beat him, but uh, Stephen Thrower says, you know, that uh, even when he realized that the Golden Films thing was coming apart, he just kept filming yeah. and kept filming, knowing mm. that he would, you know, mm. I, I suspect that he mm. would just never have that kind of creative freedom again uh, and be able no. to get these things in the can. Right. And he just he did it while he could, you know, mm. you know strike while the iron's hot, stri- strike while the iron is hot and get it done, you yeah. know, so. So we ready to talk ratings here? Talk, talk or what? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. But the, now, see, this is a weird, this is a weird area because when it you is. start talking about, uh, uh, yeah. it's always difficult for it me is because very difficult. Um, when you start talking about these um, 
rather uh, ethereal Jess Franco films, you get into an area where rating them on a one to ten scale. Uh, uh, I know, I know, I know where it falls for me uh, because uh, there are many that I think are better than this, or mm-hmm. that uh, I, I think that maybe even be the wrong way to put it. Not necessarily better, but that affected me or touched me or worked on me better. I would also go to say that did the same thing better that this one does. Yeah, maybe, I, maybe. because I, I basically I started I was I was thinking about giving it a five, but that's almost more negative than I want to come across because there's not a whole lot negative I had to say about this film. Right, you right, know, right. Based because again, I just know Franco by this time, so I think I kind of fell about a six is what I give it. But it's a six that I could. In some ways, I, I don't know that I'll watch it again, but I could almost say, see myself one day maybe throwing it again and just to enjoy those great visuals there, you know? It's, yeah. it's, I think I would definitely say this is not... Uh, you would not want to use this as a jumping-off part for Franco, jumping-off place for Franco. No, no, no. I this, think this, I would, sh- this shouldn't be... This, sh- this should not be how you uh, first dip your toes into the Franco pool. No. I would say if you want to see this done maybe better, I would say Virgin Among the Living Dead. I would say it was maybe this style of film that I think is better, unfolds better, and and and, and yeah, is, and I can see that. Better. I can yeah. see that. Yeah, um, I ended up giving it a six as well because, okay. like I say, there are other Franco films of this type that I feel have worked better, mm-hmm. uh, at least on me. Mm-hmm. Uh, films that I films that work better on me, but I, that I I don't think are nearly as as pretty or as gorgeous uh, or us. Uh, have some of the some some pieces within them that are really really impressive, mm-hmm. but uh, a six a six out of ten. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it definitely falls into the I liked it category, but in the I liked it, but I'm not sure how I'm going to feel about it mm-hmm. as far as a rewatch would be concerned. Mm-hmm. Uh, now rewatching the extras on this, I definitely know that I will do again. Oh yeah, uh, the, the erotica episode and the 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 conversation with Stephen Thrower, who's just a font of information mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and knowledge about Jess Franco's cinema and about mm-hmm. his career and about his life. And it's just absolutely fascinating to hear him talk. I like this movie. I don't think it's great. No. And you're right. It's not what I would recommend as a first time uh, mm-hmm. for a first time Franco yeah. viewer. But if you like Franco, yes, you should see it. So. Oh yeah, yeah. If you're already a Jess Franco film, man, you need to see this one. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. most assuredly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're going to see some similar, some things you've seen, before in other films, uh, but you're going to see them in in, in different ways, uh, with some different ideas behind them, and with an emotional uh, effect that is certainly different from some of the ways in which he's used this stuff in the past. This is uh, this is a neat little Jess Franco film. Mm-hmm. But then again, <laughs> it's a Jess Franco film. Yeah, yes, yeah, so it was very much that. <laughs> Uh, one day, maybe we need to go ahead and just find a Jess Franco film that neither of us like and try to review that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's I, can, a, I can think of a I few. know you've got some candidates. I've yeah. got some candidates, baby. Be interesting to take the one that I think we differ on because uh, I like I liked uh, Venus and Furs. I don't think you did, right? That's I... I, I'll be. Now, honest I've only seen it once, I, and it's been years. But I, I've only seen it once, and it's been years. So yeah, we're in so the same. Okay, we're in the same maybe position. We should tackle here. it again and see if we feel the uh, same way. Maybe it's a good idea. I think that it is one that I would like to revisit. Uh, I have only given it the one shot. So mm-hmm. maybe, uh, maybe the next time out, we try to talk about Venus we'll and Furs. Maybe. Yep. All right, folks. Well, that's going to wrap up our discussion of the night has a thousand desires. Uh, we're going to take a break, and when we get back, we have got a fair amount of listener mail to get to. Yes. Sir. 
Did you ever see a film at such a young age it left you traumatized with cinematic wounds? Ah, necrophilia. Ah, ah, ah. It's a dead issue, man. Don't don't push it. Cinema PsyOps is a weekly podcast documenting an ongoing experiment on the mind of an unwilling test subject. No one should have to watch this movie. Oh, no one should have to watch this. No one should have to watch this movie. Surprisingly, it's not a topic that a lot of people really want to tackle. I'm shocked, prudes. I know, really. Right? It's the next sexual frontier that no one wants to explore. I am, in the most sincerest of senses, disappointed in it. It takes a powerful goddess like Connie, jam her arm down the monster's throat and kill it. Oh, I'm still tripping out over that. Even as a kid, I was like, I gotta find a girl like that. Every week, I, I get a new look of disappointment that I never thought I could get it's out of. Unimaginable. At 12 years old, you should not be watching this. Obviously. At 13, you should not be. 14, you shouldn't be. I'm not entirely sure even 17-year-olds should be watching this. Just because you're offended by something doesn't mean that you have the right to demand that it doesn't exist. Watching this film again, I had all of this like little nerd glee with everything that kept Little history up. doll yeah, popping up absolutely. at you. So I totally loved this film. Hey, I know why you, you know, couldn't see that. It's because your brain's warped from watching this shit at 12 years old. Yeah, this is this is a rough movie. I told you ahead of time when we were getting ready to do it that it was How did you watch movie. this shit at 12? Because physical wounds heal, cinematic ones don't. Listen to Cinema Psyops. Here's magic, popcorn magic. Only hot, fresh, perfectly seasoned popcorn can satisfy that movie time popcorn craving. So if you like popcorn, you'll really like ours. We start with the best and make it better. Get plenty for everybody now. Folks, welcome back. Let's talk about the mailbag. Boy, it's brimming, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. some of these are a couple of months old, and we apologize to people. We've been writing back and forth with uh, several of these folks, mm-hmm. but uh, we have been remiss in reading out the emails on the podcast. Part of that is that we have been incredibly busy souls with all the commentary tracks and everything, and trying to keep. I've been trying to keep uh, some kind of regular schedule for the podcasts. Uh, we've managed it to a certain degree because I've been able to kind of muster certain things that I've held in reserve for later time. Uh, but uh, we've been very busy. There's no, it's not a good excuse, but we have been emailing back and forth with these people. We just haven't been letting everybody mm-hmm. else in on the secret. That's right. So uh, remember that you can write to us at any time. Uh, you can either write to us by clicking on the uh, the pad that has all the letters on it. What are they called? Keyboard. That's it. Yeah, the keyboard yeah. thing. Or you can uh, uh, you can record an MP3 of your uh, comments and send those in to us, and we'll play them on the show and, and respond to them. Uh, uh, hopefully, we'll respond intelligently to them. I can't promise anything. I know myself. Uh, <laughs> Troy will probably do better at that than me. I don't know about that. Hey, good. But do you want to start with? Uh, uh, oh, and, and just want to start by saying that uh, this first bit is actually the most recent, but it's very funny and and uh, is something that I think a lot of people uh, will get a kick out of. This is from a longtime listener and correspondent, Vila Wolf. Uh, she wrote in. She said, "This is going to be a bit long, but uh, of all the Nashy movies one might find themselves living in, I get Fury of the Wolf Man." She says, I currently live in the Coachella Valley, one big-ass desert around the Salton Sea. And in a clear day, I can actually, no joke, see Mexico from my house. Wow. So imagine my surprise when the local news did a bet-you-didn't-know piece about a hidden local gym. The name of this local gym? The Canadian Institute of Pathology. 
That's right. The Canadian Institute of Pathology has a considerable-sized facility in the area, not too far from where local legend holds that the ghost of a Spanish galleon tall ship, yes, in the desert, (laughs) rises from the the soil and sails the dunes. (laughs) The Canadian Institute of Pathology's head is Dr. Daninsky. Oh, I love it. That's awesome. Yes, there are zebras in the area. The Living Desert's Zoo Wildlife Sanctuary has a herd of them. So let's stop for a moment here and say that somehow or another, she has ended up living in or very near Mm -hmm. Fury of the Wolfman. She does. That is not normal. All she needs are hippies in her basement and uh, and, and Ah, bodies. Oh, is it getting better? She follows up. Oh, okay. Here we go. One more comment. She says, there are ex-hippies everywhere Ah, here. There we go. And when an airplane flies by, they start screaming about the alien mothership. (sighs) Oh. So, so she just needs to be growing human bodies in her garden, and, uh, and she'll be every, set. And it will exactly, be all there. Exactly. Tell her to start wearing. Be sure to wear shades to class if she goes to any classes or anything. Be sure to wear sunglasses. And, oh yes, folks! If that's you, great. If you've yeah. not seen uh, or somehow managed to to stumble your way through Fury of the Wolfman, uh, <laughs> trust me, it's not a it's not a Nashy film you would ever want to live in. No, it is. It is a strange, strange, bizarre world. Sure, <laughs> that's awesome. Great. <laughs> oh my lord! Well, at any rate, uh, with that, with that, uh, with that stated, we'd like to point out that uh, uh, the Nashy cast is only one of the two podcasts that Troy are that Troy and I are involved in. Let's see if I can actually speak mm-hmm. with any clarity today. <laughs> Uh, we also do uh, the Bloody Pit podcast, uh, not just Troy and I. I have lots of different mm-hmm. guests on that show. And uh, we do have on the, uh, the the main page for these podcasts, which is my blog, the Bloody Pit of Rod, a donation button. You will see it on the right side of the blog page. It's just a little bit down there, really kind of close to the top because it's a donation button and we would like you to click it and give us money. The donation uh, button is there to allow you to go to PayPal and to help us out with the cost of producing these podcasts. It, it costs a little bit of money, folks. It's not completely free. We wish it were, but brilliance, it brilliance comes at a cost. <laughs> brilliance. Let's, let's 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 not toot our own horn. That's people. Right. Soon, soon enough. Soon enough. That's, that's, no, let's not. But I would like to say long windedness. Uh, maybe that's what I should have said. Long windedness comes at a price. <laughs> That's more accurate. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But in all honesty, uh, I'd like to thank, single out and thank two of our listeners who have recently donated to the podcast. I won't give their full names out. I won't. I won't give you their last names. But one of their one of them is named. Think they're rich and want to hit them up for you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if they're going to donate to assholes like us, surely some <laughs> some actual worthy cause might be able to <laughs> convince them to wedge even more cash out of their wallets, right? <laughs> But uh, one donation was from a fellow named Harvard or Havard. I'm mispronouncing your name, aren't I, bud? That's I'm sorry. what he would expect nothing less from us. H A V A R D, Havard or Harvard. Harvard. Like Harvard. Like no, the no, no, there's no R in front of it. Oh, there's not. Oh, there's not. It's H A V R A D. So Havard? Havard, yeah. Uh, sure. Right, right back in, dude, and let us know how to pronounce your name so that I will feel less guilty about having totally destroyed your name. Better because yet, you, you, gave yet, us, you gave yeah, us money. I know. Better yet, better yet, use uh, spend that um, spend that money on a uh, on a recording device and send us an MP3 with you pronouncing your name, and then we'll be sure and get it right once. Uh, yeah. uh, yes, and, it'll, and it will make us feel important. Yeah, 
<laughs> not that your not that your wonderful donation of actual cash did not. But, yeah, you know. we do appreciate it. Thank you. But also donating to us was uh, a fellow named Mark, and this is the first time that he had donated to mm-hmm. us, and we would like to thank him as well. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate you. But adding to that joy, Mark wrote us a lengthy missive. Cool. Let's hear it. Oh, this is a good one. Yeah. Mark says, Greetings, Rod and Troy. Just wanted to say thank you for your incredibly informative and fun Nashy Cast and Bloody Pit podcasts. I have to admit that I am only really a neophyte when it comes to podcast listening. My wife was only able to get me interested in them about six months ago after years of me telling her that I wasn't interested in another hobby. Well, once she convinced me to give them a shot after listening to a couple of hers, I immediately snatched two of oh, I mean I'm sorry, I immediately searched two of my favorite film icons, Jess Franco and Paul Nashy. Lo and behold, the Nashy cast popped up and I would have been glued to my oh, and I have been glued to my iPhone ever since. I was already a huge fan of both Jess and Paul. My youngest son's name is Franco, by the way. And I was absolutely thrilled to discover two other nerds who got just as excited as I do watching and talking about these two legendary rebels of fantasy filmmaking. I've been watching their films since I was a kid in the late 70s, early 80s. I first remember seeing Mr. Nashy in House of Psychotic Women. Always loved how he ordered the cheese sandwich and some wine, but only took <laughs> one sip of the wine. But I really learned a lot more about who each of these filmmakers were in the mid-90s when I began collecting VHS tapes and, of course, eventually DVDs and Blu-ray. Uh, wow, Mark, your experience mirrors oh, mine yeah. and Troy's pretty, exactly. pretty exactly. well. Yeah. Uh, he says, In the past six months, I've gotten myself through 50 of your Nashy casts, as well as all of the point fives and beyond Nashies in between, mostly listening while I'm driving or over the Bose system when I'm getting ready for work each morning. It's taken the place of a lot of my music time, which amazes me because music has always been one of the main forces in my life. So you must really have something special with your podcast. You've also inspired me to seek out some of the rarer films I did not already own, like The Frenchman's Garden, for example, although I had already seen a good majority of Mr. Nashi's work. Two of my favorites have always been Inquisition and El Comandante, so I am particularly thrilled about the upcoming Mondo Macabro releases. Also very excited for the upcoming Code Red Blu-rays of Vengeance of the Mummy, Assignment Terror, and Fury of the Wolfman. Maybe, with a little luck, we will all come to appreciate Fury in a new light. We, well, we, we can we can only can hope only so, Mark. <laughs> because that is one warped and weird-ass freaking movie. Yes, it is. Anyhow, that's all I really wanted to say this first time around. But I will definitely write in on occasion after I get completely caught up to where you are currently with the recent podcast so that I can comment more timely on what you guys are talking about. P.S. I was also able to check out several of your Bloody Pit podcasts. One of the things that they did for me was to rekindle my old interest in Godzilla movies. I went out and bought the classic media box set of Godzilla movies, and my sons and I have been having a blast going through all of them. Troy, you would be interested to know our favorite Godzilla film is Destroy All Monsters. How cool is it when your three-year-old son wants to be Gidra for Halloween? <laughs> that is that is very cool. That is massively cool, although I have to admit, uh, you being the father, I'm sure your first thought was like, oh my God, how am I going to pull that one off? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no kidding. <laughs> However, if you do, how, do you, how do you do Gidra, for God's sake? But Mark, if you do come up with a kick-ass uh, Gidra costume, uh, you and your kids uh, need to come to G-Fest because it's an awesome costume contest and they love to have kids... A lot, of, there's a lot of kids there in, in uh, costumes, kids. and uh, so uh, 
uh, if you can come up with some, because I think a lot of people would like to know how you've managed to, to do that. Uh, if, you, if you do manage to construct that, send us a picture and, uh, of it. Let us know how you managed to make a Ghidra costume. But, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, that's yeah. awesome, man. Uh, yeah, no, it's, it's... I'm sure I speak for Rod when I say that, uh, you know, we are whores for praise. You know, we never get tired <laughs> because, because I think we're also uh, uh, always subject to our own self-doubt. And uh, yeah, and uh, yeah. I still, uh, even after all these years, I, I still have moments where I, I can't really believe people listen to us, you know. And so, so when when you tell us about how much you, time you put into uh, uh, listening to our nonsense, there it really means a lot to us. So thank you so much for that. Thank Appreciate yeah, thank you very much, Mark, for the donation and for and for the email. Please, if you feel inspired to uh, write in, please mm-hmm. do. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we'll be glad to have your comments in the future as well. Um, yeah, really, we are horse for praise, but it all does stem from the fact that both of us are uh, assailed by self-doubt at every turn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and uh, it, it does help to know that uh, there are people out there. I mean, we we see the download numbers. We know that yeah. you know yeah. we know that there are yeah. a lot of people listening to the show. But at mm-hmm. the same time, it does well. It 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 reminds us in a very different way when we can actually hear you uh, say in your own words that you enjoy the show and which aspects of it you find uh, most interesting and what drew you to it. And of course we also really, really love finding out about other people who've been Nashy fans for as long as Troy, Mm. uh, because clearly you've been, you've been as, you, you've been you've been a fan of Nashy for at least as long as Troy has, and that's kind of amazing. Yeah, that is always cool to hear because yeah, there's not many of us who who caught who was able to to catch him early in some of those early TV appearances there, and and uh, even if it was a while before we understood really who he was and you know and what he really meant to uh, cinema, you know, we we uh, we were starting to recognize him like oh, there's that cool there's that guy again. Um, well, cool. Well, thank you, Mark. I'm going to move on to another mail here from uh, this is from Craig. Craig says. Hi, guys. I want to tell you how much I enjoy both podcasts. I particularly enjoyed listening to that last bloody pit when you covered Cannibal Holocaust. And now that was you and Hunt John. No, no, no. That was... Who did you do Cannibal, that Cannibal Holocaust was uh, me and Adrian Smith. That's right, buddy, that's right. buddy of mine from over uh, over England way. That's right, that's right. And uh, he says, uh, Craig says it's the best movie you'll only want to watch once. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think yeah. we all struggle yeah. with those films that are just so well made, and yet they make you feel so bad that you just you don't often get in the mood to to, to watch them. Uh, I know several films yeah. like that. Yeah. So, Cannibal Holocaust is a is mm-hmm. a. I've now seen it three times in my life, and mm. it's. Uh, I think that I think it's been three. Mm. Re- refer to the podcast. Refer to the Cannibal Holocaust <laughs> podcast from, for my actual That's counting right. because it, it dims with memory, and that is something that keeps me sane. <laughs> uh, he says, "But I've truly enjoyed the Nashi cast. In fact, I was about to buy my first Paul Nashi DVD, Night of the Werewolf, uh, in a, on the same tape with the same disc with Vengeance of the Zombies, a Blu-ray, but I lost the bid on eBay." Oh. This pissed me off because it seems like Nashi titles are tough to find. So as Nashi fans, do you have any suggestions on where to buy? Also, I've seen horror collections with Nashi movies on them in the budget DVD sections of stores, but question the quality. Any insight you could give me would be greatly appreciated. Um, well, Craig, like the uh, <clears throat> like the the wandering prophets of old who fasted in the desert uh, to uh, get their <laughs> visions, we bring you the good news. Uh, yes, uh, if you it, haven't which already, which you probably by now yeah, know, yeah. but we're going to say it here again: is it's 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 a happy time, uh, especially even for those two movies you missed out on. You're probably going to be glad you did now. The the famine is over. Mm-hmm. The feast mm-hmm. has begun. Yes, night of the werewolf, inches of the zombies. It will be coming out in. June from Scream Factory on Blu-ray with uh, and Night of the Werewolf. We have an audio commentary by yours truly, the Nashi cast. Um, there's also on that same box set. Uh, yeah, it's, go- it's going to be um, uh, Horror Rises from the Tomb and Blue Eyes of the Broken Doll. 
and uh, Exorcismo, I believe, right? And, of course, uh, Mondo Macabro has announced that they're releasing El Comandante, a film that yes. all Nashi fans should see. And, of course, Inquisition is available uh, for order right now. As a matter of fact, I think the uh, the regular edition of that comes out uh, in the next few weeks, yes. if I'm not completely wrong. Yeah. We've heard rumblings of other things in the pipeline. We're not going to say anymore because they haven't been confirmed. But uh, let's just well, say... Well, there are the three Code Red releases. That that's are, true. But true. We, those, we have no idea what uh, release dates on those yeah. are going to be. But, right. uh, you know, those those... Those are those they are worthy films. Yeah, they yeah. have announced those. So so, so yeah. So uh, like I said, don't don't. You're probably you're not gonna. You didn't miss out on anything like getting that DVD. Uh, so I think you're gonna be really happy with these Blu-rays. So yeah. So it's great news. We're going to thank you, Craig, and we're going to we're going to move on to uh, this is from Billy, and Billy writes to us. He says, "Hello guys, I'm catching up on your old podcast, and you just mentioned that you saw It Follows in the Discount Theater." Man, I'm so jealous. Where I live, New Jersey, we haven't had any discount theaters for a good ten years. Yeah, well, unfortunately, we <laughs> there's don't a sad have addendum to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me interrupt you to say, yeah, there is a sad addendum. Uh, I used to I, I lived near the uh, the one second run theater in Nashville, and uh, I knew a couple of years ago when it, along with all theaters, got converted to a di- to to digital projection. That uh, man, I was living the high life because it's a two dollar theater digital projection. We're not talking about mm-hmm. watching prints right. that have been run through a, a <clears throat> projector a hundred thousand times right. and hoping that it's complete. Uh, we're watching, we're watching pure gold here. This is the way it was in every theater, and I knew it probably wasn't going to last. So yeah, unfortunately, I don't have a second run theater near me anymore. I have a regular theater charging regular prices, mm-hmm. and therefore uh, my nights out mm-hmm. at the movie theater over the next forever are going to be yeah. much fewer in yeah. number. Mar- uh, Billy goes on to say, In the heyday of discount theaters around here back in the 90s, I was there all the time. I was a young parent and on a tight budget, so I did not go to the first-run movies very often. But this was the time that Jackie Chan's Hong Kong movies were being issued here in the States in theaters. It was like a dream come true, and I figured I had to support their theatrical run, you know, to send Hollywood a message that there was a market for these films. So dollar theaters always remind me of Super Cop, First Strike, Twin Dragons, Operation Condor, and the rest from that era. Good times. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. It says, Rodney, you also referenced a George Carlin joke, which Troy either did not catch or did not know because he did not respond to it. But I caught it, bro, loud and clear. Could be meat, could be cake, it must be meat cake. One of my faves, and you know, I don't, I, I don't remember you. I would not have gotten that because I had not heard that quote. Oh, but really? I don't even remember you saying that. Well, I see, that's just it. I, I, I was going to say that you either uh, didn't get it, which means you just didn't ever see that particular George yeah, Carlin yeah, Sanders special, or you got it and were and and were disgusted that I was stealing a joke from George Carlin, <laughs> and therefore decided to just glare at me and move on with your life. No. I, I couldn't tell you which, but if you no. didn't, if you hey. didn't get it yet, is an, it's an old George Carlin joke. Listen, so. if you're gonna steal, steal from the greats, and George was one of the greats. Hell yeah. Um, and so Billy finishes up by saying, "Thank you very much for the podcast. It's very entertaining, and it keeps me occupied all day long at work. My best wishes to you both. Thank you, Billy. And Billy actually then." Um, Followed up with another message, another letter we're going to read here. He says, Hello guys, I just caught up with your podcast episode about Eyeball. Since you recorded your podcast, the soundtrack album has been made available as a digital download in the iTunes store. Oh. The title music for Eyeball is just brilliant. I always loved it as your theme music. I'm glad to learn its origin. 
Bruno Nicolai did the scores for Shanghai Joe, and his name was Cemetery, two of my favorite spaghetti themes. He's quite the composer. Thanks again for the great job you do with the podcast. So, yeah, I thought that was good to people to know that if uh, they can find that is good for Eyeball, also known as the Nashicast theme. Yeah, yeah, yeah. First of all, Bruno Nicolai, as a composer, was a freaking genius. Uh, he's somebody who I always <laughs> love listening to, and, and I'm always surprised. He did... He did such a wide variety of scores. I mean, much like Ennio Morricone at the same time, you know, mm-hmm. working mm-hmm. at the same time. Uh, and it's one of those. Uh, it, it's one of those great little areas to to get into if you are a film movie. Uh, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. a, a film music aficionado. Mm-hmm. Uh, delving into uh, Bruno Nicolai can lead you into some wonderful little areas because some of the comp- some of the stuff he did for uh, Euro spy films uh, made in the '60s. And uh, some of the spaghetti westerns he composed for, it just some. I mean, they're just magic, yeah, and they're they're incredibly catchy. They're they're the kind of things that will never leave your head. Which is and it's and that's one of the things about uh, about Eyeball's score as well is it's it's beautiful. I have an older release when it, uh, from years ago when it was released on CD, but that has been out of print for mm-hmm. some time. So it's good to know that it yeah. has been made available again <coughs> through uh, through iTunes. That's that's great yeah. to know. And uh, I'd also just uh, think we should bring up right here, just real quick, let people know that if you're listening to any of our episodes out there, if you run into any problems with hearing them at all, let us know, because over time, wonky things can happen to to episodes that are floating out there on iTunes and various things, and I know, yeah, Rod, I know yeah. you had to fix a couple I did, I did. Yeah, I did have to repair a couple, yeah. And so just to, you know, please... Please let us know if you do run across something you're having trouble hearing because uh, things can happen like that out there and we might not know if you don't let us know about it. So we appreciate the people who have let us know about those problems so we can get them fixed. Very much so. Well, cool. Oh, is that is that it? Uh, that, yes, that is that is our mailbag, and it was it was it was a it was a very full mailbag, and we appreciate that. We love full mailbags. Thank you. <laughs> we we like full bags of stuff. Yes, we do. But that's we should probably end that joke right there. Yeah, so, I know exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, let's point out that uh, you can re- you can reach us at nashicast at gmail dot com. We'd be glad to hear from you, and uh, in general, we'll probably end up striking up a, 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 an email correspondence with you back and forth. Mm-hmm. But that's just because we're needy people who need to know that people out there actually are listening mm-hmm. to us, and only ev- the only evidence that we have really is your voice. That's right. In whatever mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. form that you <laughs> send it to us, but uh, right now we'd like to point out that uh, you can. Uh, Meet us back here, hopefully in a month. We have tentative plans to yeah. do another episode next month that might just be a regular Nashy cast episode instead of a Beyond episode. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there will be future Beyond episodes yep. uh, in, in the summer as well. We already have a couple of films on tap that we want to talk about. But you can also join uh, me and a bunch of other people, not just Troy, but me and several other people. You really over. need to get away from Troy. You can go to the Bloody Pit and get to. Although I'll, I'll pop up there every now and then too. We're not sure when I'll next be popping up there, but I will be. Some well, I mean, recently just the we, we did the Beyond. The beyond. Right. So yeah, 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 there's that. So uh, if uh, you're curious about uh, other non-Spanish horror-related films and you want to hear me talk about them, whether I have a, a deep, sultry voice as I do now, <laughs> or whether I sound like myself, uh, come on over to the Bloody Pit. Uh, I have uh, different episodes coming out soon. Uh, let's see. I'm working on another Margariti episode with John Hudson. Uh, I've got one uh, due out any day now about uh, Fu Manchu movies, starting with uh, Mask of Fu Manchu with Boris Karloff. So we'll be talking about that and a number of other things. And uh, boy, do I have some other stuff down the road. 
Uh, eventually, I swear to you, I'm going to get Randy Fox back in the studio. Yeah, we got to get Randy back on here, and we're going to talk about roller. <laughs> we're going to talk about rollerball. Uh, we're going to yeah. do it. We're yeah. going to do it. Yeah, good, good. So, we'll see you very soon here again on the Nashy Cast. Thank you for listening. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. Bye bye now. <laughs>